Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. This audio edition is created in conjunction with partners as part of our Market Voice series. Well, we're hearing a lot about retailers diving into the media business in this market with their owned assets. Coles and Woolworths are the pinups at the moment, of course, but there's a whole lot more to this than finely targeted supplier brand ads on a supermarket e-commerce site. Today, we've got the architect of Harrods retail media business in the UK, Guy Cheston, now an advisor to luxury brands like Porsche, Dolce & Gabbana and Burberry, on where this is going internationally and Europe particularly. Guy is joined by the founders of Sonda, an Australian firm with global initiatives with brands monetizing their owned assets in the same way media companies do. Sonda has a raft of case studies and learnings on how it should and shouldn't be done from business case planning to implementation. So just how are these companies operationalizing their owned media? What do the tech stacks look like, the teams, talent, stakeholder management, and the resource required? So I'm looking forward to this one, gents. Welcome. Um, to Guy first, let's take a fast history lesson, shall we, on Harrods in the media business, how it started, how sophisticated it got, and what the impact was on the business and how supplier partners engaged. Welcome, Guy, from the north, the far north. And yes, Harrods, how did it start? How did you get there? Hi, Paul. Great to be here. Yeah, so I, I joined Harrods in about 2003 after a 20-year career in um, in outdoor uh, magazines and newspapers, very much with a media sales background. I was taken on to really create a, a media portfolio for Harrods. At that stage, they were generating around just under a million pounds, uh, 1.7 million Aussie a year. They had a raft of old uh, backlit posters, poster light boxes around the escalator wells, the high footfall areas. They used to sell a window about once a year with a competition linked to the sale, and they had a biannual customer catalogue. So they really hadn't put much into it. And I I have to say, a lot goes down to the vision of the the very famous Egyptian owner of Harrods at that time, Mr. Mohammed Al-Fayed, who was very visionary and a great businessman, fantastic salesman. And he realised that actually, you know, Harrods was perhaps the one retailer on the planet that had these incredible relationships with the world's global luxury brands. And he felt very strongly that we weren't, that Harrods wasn't, um, you know, getting its true maximum potential and investment from the brands uh, within the Harrods Emporium. So, yeah, I was, my brief was to come in and set up a media, media business to start dialogue with those brands and really create something which was going to be far more attractive to um, generate some income. Did the business have any sense of what it wanted to achieve and what it wanted to look like at that point? Or was it open, uh, sort of a greenfield, if you like? I think perhaps Al-Fayed did, definitely. But I think the rest of the, right. the, rest of the business, no, it hadn't really come across their, uh, their radar. When I joined as, with my media sales and advertising re- uh, media background, you know, I felt incredibly out of my depth in terms of knowing nothing about retail. Uh, but equally, I was the only person in the sort of 5,000 strong company that knew anything about media. So, you know, it was a real re-education and a real job for me to try and put my stamp on the business internally to uh, bang the drum for, you know, the possibilities and the potential for generating incremental media streams. So where did you start? Where did you start, well, Guy? Yeah, 
Yeah, I started um, I started in a pokey little office. I think it was my first day. I couldn't believe it. I looked up at one point and there was Mohammed Al-Fayed actually sort of standing in my office uh, asking if I'd settled in all right. And this is the guy that was followed around by bodyguards, you know, was like God within the business. Yes. So, you know, it just showed the um, how important it was to him to make this happen. But, um, yeah, there was a trade marketing team of around six people across the, the, the different divisions, and their, their role was really just to create marketing programs for the different directorates. And my role really was to try and engage with the merchants who held the relationships with the brands, because I quickly identified that they were key to making this happen. And if I could at least tempt them in with the idea that, you know, we could support the buy that they were making, they're investing, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds with buying the merchandise. And if we could create a media portfolio that actually drove and drove those retail sales within the business, then, you know, I was going to be onto a winner. I was going to have them on my side. At the same time, you know, I quickly realized that some incentive for the merchants to get them on side was going to be helpful. So we implemented a, um, a sales commission scheme fairly early on. So they had a bit of a slice of the action. So as part of their conversations with the brands, they were actually making sure they weren't forgetting the, <laughs> to highlight the media opportunities and to contact that nice chap guy in the, in the advertising department. So that worked pretty well. In fact, it worked so well that in, in 12 years, we grew it from a million to over 22 million pounds in revenue. And uh, we went from a team of six to a dedicated team of over 40 people, all run in-house. And um, yeah, it was incredibly successful. How sophisticated or what changed from when you first started to when, I guess, when you left? What did the internal machine look like for the media business, the media unit? Yes. So I think initially this media sales or the owned media division was really just a little tiny element of the trade marketing team, which then became established as a complete division, you know, recognized not only within Harrods itself, but also I think recognized within the wider industry, certainly in the UK, that Harrods has set up its own in-house media division, which was funding the entire marketing function of the store. Right. So, you know, there was a complete step change throughout that time. So, and it, you know, it is very much established and, you know, I understand it's going great guns today. So... Uh, was there any cues? What were the supermarkets doing at the time, Guy? Because though I'm sure in-store at least, the, they were working their uh, shelves and their in-store environments pretty well at that point or not? It was Harrods was very early. Yeah, we were pretty early, although... I remember the big noise at the time when I joined was this launch of Tesco Television. And, uh, you know, they were, they were putting a big investment in terms of creating their own content, their own studios, their own presenters. And I think where they fell short is that they got the actual, the installation and the execution completely wrong, where they, you know, hung a load of TVs from polystyrene ceiling tiles across the aisles and um, expected it to work. At that time, my big remit was to transform all of the light boxes into digital screens. And we spent twice as much on the design and the aesthetics of the putting in the digital screen than the actual hardware itself. And that quickly transformed our space. And I think as a single store, I mean, OK, it was, it was, you could argue so much easier for us because we were, albeit a million square feet of single store, but it was a opportunity for us to create something different to what else was actually happening out there. And I think we clearly, we got it right. Mm. And it ended up being the most profitable um, medium uh, within the store. But really, aside from that, 
you know, Harrods is a luxury store, so the idea of shelf wobblers and um, gondola ends, you know, doesn't really figure. So it was more focused around, you know, in-store digital. And then the other big game changer was the customer publishing side, where we we used to contract out of house with a, a, a contract publisher. And we decided to bring that in in-house and create our own content, set up our own teams, invest in talent and resource. And we created Harrods Publishing which ended up generating half the annual revenues. Just out of interest, how did the early on and all the way through, how did brands and suppliers buy what you were doing? Were they in from the get-go and what sort of measurement or how did you measure impact and did they worry about that then early on or was it did that come later? Yeah, the sophistication in terms of the ROI and the attribution came definitely came later. I think in the early days, I think brands... And the marketing guys at the brands were just happy to see their brand supported in store to drive their retail sales. I think Harrods were quite smart in the sense of around half of the business was concession. And within those concession contracts, there was a uh, a contractual clause that a percentage of the sales turnover was dedicated to in-store media, supporting in-store media. So in a way, it was like knocking on an open door. But equally, we had to justify that expenditure and prove that it was it created value. And But certainly, I think more recently, that's become more of a challenge. And that's where, I guess, the likes of, you know, the kind of amazing work that Sonda do, that's really comes in to its own in terms of supporting owned media, particularly in retail, of how they can develop their business further. We'll get to the Sonda bit in a minute. But, you know, is there anything when you look back now and enrolling out that program, the, the internal retail and media unit and so forth, would you do anything differently, Guy? Did you see anything where you'd go, well, I would have changed that up with the benefit of hindsight? Yeah, I think we should have put more investment into research. I also think as a business, we should have, we had a tendency to go off, and I think it's still the case today, where individual owned medias tend to go off in their own, plough their own furrow. You tend to sort of do it your own way. And there's a lack of industry cohesion, I believe, and a lack of currency. I think particularly coming from a wider media background in terms of my experience you know whether it be outdoor press or magazines you could see there was a much greater collegiate approach where you know the business would have standardized rate cards or audience measurement systems research programs and I think there was a danger of each individual owned media business just going off on its own tangent and doing it their way so I think I would have pushed for more I would have probably do do more of a a push outside of just Harrods to the wider owned media retail business. To Jonathan and Angus, um, some of this sounds quite familiar and similar. Other parts of what Guy's talking about is quite different. What's your take, both of you, on what you're hearing about the UK and European markets versus what's happening in the Australian market, gents? And welcome to Jonathan or Angus first. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities. You know, we've been in conversation with quite a few industry leaders in the US and in Europe. And the macro themes are very similar. You know, when you're talking about profit margins of 80 to 90 percent, CEOs and CFOs are going to stand up and take notice um, and be very excited about the opportunity. As you know, we work with market leader retailers, telcos, petrol convenience, travel and loyalty businesses. And whether they're charging cash for direct revenue or representing the value as indirect revenue on deals, there is a rapidly growing appetite to acknowledge the significant value that own media represents. And just touching on Guy's point around Mohammed Al-Fayed and 
you know, really leading from the front, that's one of the key criteria in, in making this happen. Um, we've seen it time and time again when your CEO or your, your leader is behind the, the idea and they, get, they manage to get enrollment from the whole business, then change happens. Um, and we saw this in Australia with Brad Banducci of Woolworths when he came out and said retailers are the new media owners and managed to corral and, and change the game in the Australian market and get you know, the largest business in the country behind the idea. So from that perspective, from a leadership perspective, absolutely there's, there's similarities. And in terms of where Australia sits globally, based on our intel, very much at the forefront um, with businesses like Cartology leading the way in terms of sophistication and capability and data smarts. You know, that's comparable with the, the big players in the US and the, and the UK. So well, let's break down how all this comes together, really, because we've heard a lot on the, on the macro themes, but actually how retailers and their plans for media units, um, how they actually operationalise this, we haven't heard too much around it. So I just want to go through a bunch of points on that. But first up to all of you, really, um, your initial thoughts on can and should every retailer have a retail media business? And can all of them actually self-fund the broader marketing budget? Does that can that and will that work in every case? So I guess the short answer is no <laughs> on that one, Paul. But in many cases, the retailers can and should have media divisions. But it really comes down to, I guess, dividing and assigning the type of retailers that you're talking about. So if you divide all retailers up into two groups. One where you have aggregator retailers and they are businesses like Harrods, like DJs or Myers, who are basically purveyors of other brands. They have commercial uh, relationships and terms with these brands and they effectively work to sell other products. And then secondly, you have proprietary brand retailers and that's the the kind of thing like Zara or H&M who are effectively selling their own product um, within their store and, and web environments. And so for the aggregator businesses, owned media is absolutely an area they, they are and should be looking at because there is so much growth and opportunity for them to help their brands actually grow. If you're a proprietary brand retailer, the business case is probably not there from a commercial perspective, certainly from a strategic and marketing perspective it can be, but the commercial side certainly relies on the aggregator retailers. And can it actually self-fund or exceed marketing budgets? Well, when it's done really well, uh, the payback on media can certainly make huge contributions. And obviously, there has to be a lot of caveats around this because it really comes down to uh, the sort of size of marketing budget that the organization has, the resource, the ambition, you know, what they actually put into generating media sales and creating a team internally. So there's a lot of factors and variables there you know, that will go into just how much media revenue can self-fund or exceed marketing budgets. And I guess the other thing is just understanding to my earlier point about how media revenue is being attributable um, within departments across a business. Because one thing we've uh, recognized is that owned media touches a lot of different divisions within a business. You have merch, you have sales, you have marketing, and they all have vested interests in uh, leveraging owned media. And these sort of complexities when it comes to these different divisions can be a real challenge um, to get around. But 
when these challenges are dealt with and when the media money is actually able to be driven, uh, we know that it can be very lucrative. And I think, you know, to Guy's points earlier, Harrod certainly saw that. Angus, just on that though, and to put you on the spot, on the for all the projects and work you're doing with retail partners in this area, what proportion are either fully funding or significantly funding their marketing budgets and the work that you're seeing, the visibility you've got? Well, the clients that we work with are all using owned media in different ways. The retail businesses have a much better opportunity to monetize it, you know, in terms of media for cash money. And so their ability to generate revenue that goes into the bottom line is very, very good. And their ability to offset marketing costs is strong. When it comes to other organizations who aren't looking for cash money, you know, they're looking to leverage their own media in value, they're looking to leverage it in, uh, in deals, trade deals and the like. And roughly 50% of our clients would be doing that and the other 50 are monetizing for cash money. Now, Guy, Angus talked about, he didn't say turf wars, I'm saying turf wars, but the healthy <laughs> competition, you could call it, between the different um, departments inside a retailer, merchandise, sales, marketing, et cetera. What are the lessons and, and watchouts that you learned there? It, it sounded like you didn't have too much of that at, at Harrods, but it sounds pretty real world and other executions. So yeah, learnings there, lessons there, and, and bringing um, peace and love to the whole enterprise. Yeah, I, th- I think the reality was quite challenging, <laughs> that relationship between between the sort of media and the partnerships team and the actual merchants, because it really comes down to who owns that relationship. And it's also, you know, what your primary objective is as a, as a, a representative of that company. So I think the challenge very much, it means so much of it was an internal challenge of, of convincing uh, and getting the merchants on side to getting them to understand that, you know, you are actually helping their helping their cause and supporting what they were trying to achieve. And, you know, the enlightened, a bit, a bit similar to, to what Jonathan said earlier about, the, you know, the uh, leadership, by the buy-in from the leaders. I think it's equally, it's the same for the merchants. It's a case of getting those merchants and, and working with them alongside them as part of a team. In fact, my team used to go off on buying trips with the merchants to all the major buying fairs. And they used to go in tandem and actually meet the, uh, meet the brands uh, at the same time. So part of the meeting was talking about media support. And the other part of the meeting was obviously talking about the actual buy. So, you know, we created this this actually very successful uh, sense of team and working together for the common objective, which uh, was was really successful. Right. So you did get there. Jonathan, from your observations on your client base, what are the key things to address up front in, in that dynamic between the different teams and departments? You know, you've got structures, incentives. Who owns it? Who typically, by the way, ends up having sort of ownership or management of the retail media unit inside these companies? Is it marketing or is it merchandising? How does it fall? What are the pitfalls and watchouts, I guess, is the key thing there? Yeah, it does vary. I mean, uh, there is no silver bullet here. Um, You can take the cartology and Coles model whereby you carve off an amount of inventory for media sales and you set up a media sales which has its own P&L and exists in its own right. Um, and that's the same as what Guy is talking about at Harrods. So that that independence allows it to flourish um, and focus on a budget. And then the marketing team can still use those channels, but they've got their own inventory for their own communication. Um, so that's one model. The other model is to um, let the merch team 
um, maintain those relationships because let's not forget here in a lot of the retailers that we're talking about, the merch team have cultured, nurtured that relationship over decades and use media as a sweetener in their in the deals to great effect. Um, and it's, you know, the ad sub or the co-op funding model is is well entrenched in a lot of Australian retail businesses. Um, so to try and break that in some cases might be a bit rash. And in those cases where the relationship is held there and it's entrenched, then it's, you know, it's to Guy's point, it's bringing media salespeople with that expertise along to the conversation so that partners see that the media has a, a value um, and that the business is taking that communication and support that they're offering the partner brands very seriously. So that's another model. The other way to do it is to house it within marketing or category sales um, departments, which is some, you know, something we also see across our suite of clients. But I think it's wherever the relationship is held. I think the marketing team are, are always going to be involved because they own the channels um, and they're ultimately responsible for the messages that their customer base sees. And it's important to have that balance between their own communication and adding value through partner communication. So I think the marketing team should always be involved in some way. One of the biggest sort of flashpoints or learnings around breaking down that resistance, Jonathan, is it just, you know, Guy talked about, you know, incentivizing the merchandising team, which sort of helped heal any potential wounds. Uh, but what happens in terms of bringing that, that cohesiveness and collaboration together? Is there any special little tricks, if you like, techniques or strategies that helps that along? I think education is first and foremost. A lot of the merchandise team are not media experts and they might have been giving media away and not realizing the true value of it. Right. So having a valuation done business-wide where the merch team are involved in that process is a key first point so that everyone across the business goes, wow, I didn't realize we were sitting on a $150 million worth of owned media. And that once it's given that dollar amount and valuation, it changes the way that the business views the channels. Um, and we've seen that in multiple categories across multiple businesses. Um, so education, teamwork are, are critical. The other one is leadership from the top, as we've mentioned. But the other one is that tension that is naturally going to exist between growing product sales and growing profit. And at what stage is a media format more useful to drive product growth um, versus get media sales revenue. So first and foremost, it's important to state that owned media should help grow the core business through driving that purchase conversion at the point of sale. And that revenue can either come through heightened margin, so indirect revenue, by including the value of media in the deal, or through charging cash money for the media itself. But either way, that value of that media should be recognized. And secondly, and probably important to answer your question around harmonization between marketing and merch and category sales, do not be mercenary about chasing after this media revenue because you risk over-commercializing your own media channels and turning customers off. There needs to be this triple win between the customer, first and foremost, the supplier, and then your own business. So for example, customer navigation in stores and online should be enhanced rather than distracted by partner messages. So right. you need to be adding value through those partner messages to the customer 
for it to be successful and for all departments to get behind the concept and the idea. What it can't be seen as is slapping ads on your media channels and not adding value to the customers because that's counterintuitive. Guy's got some thoughts on this, but firstly, have you got some, is there a couple of examples or an example, Jonathan, of where it's been done, it's been overcooked? And I don't expect you to name names, love you too, but that won't happen. But is there an example of where you've seen that being overdone? Yeah, in the digital world, especially, I think there's been a bit of overexcitement because it's so easy to serve ads through software platforms and ad servers. People might have overcooked it. And when we work with clients, we absolutely advise as much to pair it back as to dial it up. So it's very much about achieving a, a balance. And, you know, the own media industry has been around for quite a while now. So there are norms and benchmarks that we can refer to that, that give guidance on these things on you know what's acceptable by customers um, and not going to turn them off but i'd say probably yeah, the websites and some e- some instances emails have been have been over over commercialized so guy you got some thoughts on some of the um, observations from jonathan there yeah i think the the step change in my experience was the you know going back to the customer and and how much brand love was created through media sales and own media uh, investing in fantastic, improving the environment, both in store, but also through things like the customer magazine, the customer publishing. That engagement in terms of driving customer loyalty and driving them into the store and then giving that customer just a, a wow experience when they come into the store was something that, that you know, the whole media media side of the business was was creating. And that's that really helped, I think, not just the senior management in terms of the business understanding what impact um, this can have, but also, you know, amongst the the wider community across the store right. who felt that uh, that was really enhanced the whole experience. Angus, the other, um, what you're seeing in these programs is existing suppliers and vendors, sure, they are there for a ready market for these retail and media units, but can expansion to other advertisers, other brand advertisers work? Do you see much of that? You don't see a lot of it. And it's definitely the next horizon uh, for retail media and owned media. Finding those like-minded brands who can benefit from your audience but are not actually sold in your store is, you know, the, the certainly the next level. And, you know, we've worked with the likes of Meyer and they had Tesla in their entrance foyer. So that was a good example of where you can right. create a brand partnership with a product that is not actually sold within your environment. But it's definitely a Horizon 2 piece because essentially you're, you're really leveraging and selling your audience rather than the context. And that requires really, really appealing media formats, more appealing than what a brand can buy out there in the paid media world. It right. requires better fulfillment, better reporting, better ROI. So there's a lot to it if you're going to move into that sort of space. So for Harris, that was uh, that was a really a, a grew into being a, a really big part of our business. Uh, at one point, it was around twenty five to thirty percent of our annual revenues were from external companies using Harrods as a platform. And I think the thing that really appealed to them was that they could actually interact with their consumer. You know, you got fifty thousand people coming into a single store every single day of the week. Um, so it was the opportunity to promote, to engage, to collect data. In those days. And you could sell as well. And originally, what moved from you know car brands to luxury real estate to credit cards, then actually moved into the brands, the luxury brands themselves saw this uh, as an opportunity to create huge store takeovers. So we had the likes of Prada, Dolce & Gabbana, Chanel, 
who would actually take over the whole store for a, for a season uh, and take almost every single bit of media uh, available. And they, they tripled their investment in terms of the ROI. So that engagement piece and the, and the greater wider PR that a retailer can get from engaging with, with non-brands that aren't sold in store can be incredibly powerful, particularly when it's done on an international basis too. Right. And Angus, is it because, you know, we're not seeing that much of it because it does require a bit of imagination. It's probably a little bit beyond or outside what the norm has been. Is that where? Is that why there's some slowness to move into that area? Uh, I think there's probably more a case of the low-hanging fruit is the um, direct brands and products that retailers are working with. And there's a lot to be gained and leveraged in that space first. I mean, I think these kinds of brand partnerships are happening. They, they do occur and they're out there, but it's not a big area yet. But I think we'll see more and more of that coming in the next year or two. Um, having said that, we do work with a lot of loyalty businesses and financial institutions, both here in Australia and around the world, and they don't have any products to sell or vendor partners. Um, so all of their offer partners in, in the loyalty space or sponsorship partners are using their media channels and they're supporting campaigns and offers when they're not vendors. So that the model is there. Um, they're just There's a bit of reticence around some of the other sectors. But certainly in the loyalty space, they're dealing with thousands and thousands of offer brands, um, partner brands a year per year. So the model's there in terms of non-endemic brands. Well, there's a precedent for sure, isn't there? Let's get to the tech because increasingly in digital uh, environments, technology plays you know, a really important role. So what's required there and how much investment is needed and who's using what? Uh, and some examples would be great. So, you know, to all of you, really, it's really, what does the tech stack look like? What's required? You know, can you plug into legacy systems or does it require some new investment? Yeah, our clients asked us this question, Paul, um, years ago, and these platforms didn't really exist. So we set about right. building our own, um, which is now used by retailers, telcos and other industries, both here and around the world. And the software platforms that do exist can take a lot of the legwork out of it and a lot of the you know the headcount um, reduce that significantly tech requirements will vary depending on what the organization already has in place often they will have things like content management systems cmss already in place for their own marcoms um, so it can easily be turned on for partner messages too so in some businesses that are more sophisticated in that area, what we see is they already have these tech platforms in place, things like CMSs, programmatic desks, if they're really advanced, campaign reporting systems, attribution understanding, um, you know, like we've seen with Woolies X um, and their Everyday Rewards program, their first-party data is incredible, and their ability to report, which is the currency of own media, um, and what differentiates it from paid is phenomenal. So they can deliver those um, sales uplifts um, reports on an ongoing basis through their tech stack and their data stacks. So it does depend on the category. It does depend on whether you're selling or representing it as value. And it does depend on what you have in place already. But it's catching up the paid media world is the summary in terms of data and tech stack and probably ahead yeah. in terms of data. I was going to say, you know, well, firstly, what does the Sonder Kit tech look like? What is it that you plug in? But also, 
you know, increasingly in digital environments and certainly in e-com context, first-party data, you know, CDPs, customer data platforms, CRM, all that surely would be really important as you start to refine and target and talk, you know, close enough to -to one-to-one or personalized comms to that. So how does it all that, you know, where does the Sonder kit fit into that? Yeah, so we have um, media management software, which houses rate cards, allows campaign management, planning um, and booking, so live inventory systems, um, and then can plug into different integrations, either at the front end through the likes of Google Analytics data um, or at the back end into invoicing systems or content delivery, ad servers, that type of thing. And also run the analytics, so allow you to look at which category is getting most value or, or where the revenue is coming from by brand, all those types of types of metrics. Okay. So it's kind of holistic in that in that respect, and also looks after physical and and digital channels. What about the most profitable channels? What are you all seeing in terms of the commonalities? There is every channel that a retailer has showing the same signs of promise and prosperity or is it different what where are they where's the focus angus so where we're seeing real value within the own media ecosystems email is probably the most valuable media asset for most businesses it just doesn't die does it email just doesn't die it doesn't die i mean i think it's been coined as the cockroach media um yes. it will never die it is sensational but it's it's good for a reason because it gets you know into people's inboxes the quality of email design now and the kind of um, content that can be displayed in there is really impressive like it look a lot of these retail emails look really really compelling and the beauty of email is that you can build into those structures um, different ad placements for retailers uh, and for brands. So to the earlier point about not overcooking it, not overdoing it, depending on the type of email, you can actually still legitimately and um, responsibly put in quite a lot of different brand messages into an email. The other thing we're seeing is screen networks. Um, so for businesses that have physical uh, networks, um, stores and branches and that kind of thing, Screen networks are definitely becoming more attainable. So the costs to actually building them, deploying them and running them is is coming down. And uh, the screens, you know, they deliver on that customer experience, improving the customer experience. Because there's a number of rotations on a digital screen, you can put in many different messages, both for your own marketing, but also for other brands. So they're probably the, the two big call outs um, that we're seeing. And is that the same in the in the UK and Europe, Guy? Is that the sort of similar scenario? Yeah, it's pretty similar. I, I think um, certainly the digital signage screens are, you know, once you've put that investment in and um, amortised the, the capex, you know, they, they really just become cash machines. And, um, you know, they are extremely profitable, high margin, and they're incredibly reliable these days too. So, um, you know, not like the old days where you come in, fingers crossed, hoping that half your screens weren't blanked out yes Um, these days they're they're pretty good and um yeah so i would say it's pretty similar over here i guess they're working because they work um reporting what sort of dashboards what are various players looking for and the data feeds that they're getting in the analytics and what's working what's not and the visibility on that what does reporting look like and what are the pitfalls here 
Angus? When it comes to reporting, sales uplift is the gold standard. And this is uh, possibly one of the biggest distinguishing factors of owned media organizations versus paid media outlets. It's the ability to demonstrate downstream financials. And it's something that, you know, the paid media market just can't achieve. They can't get to that level of detail. But where an organization has that first party data, they can see right down to the very bottom of the funnel, the sales and the profit contribution for the brand. That is incredibly powerful data. And so, you know, we're seeing the ability to report on sales uplift as being the gold standard. But not all businesses are in a position to be able to do that. But what we're also seeing is that uh, case studies are absolutely crucial to really driving owned media. And, you know, when we're, when we're dealing with organizations that are getting more and more sophisticated in this space, the ability to actually demonstrate and show examples of how their owned media ecosystems have delivered a business outcome for another brand that becomes really, really powerful. Mm, good points. Um, well, listen, we're going to wrap this up with a final take from all of you and what next for the next 12 months? What do you see happening? Guy, start with you in retail media across Europe. What's the big thing you think is coming? Well, a couple of the big things. You know, we're hearing a lot of noise coming across the pond from the US about this incredibly lucrative uh, shop of me or retail media explosion that's happening in the States. So, I think there's a sense over here that, um, you know, the future looks incredibly positive and with lots of opportunity and potential. You know, interestingly, we're seeing footfall coming back to the stores following COVID and the various lockdowns. But the numbers are are still a little bit flaky um, in terms of uh, the whole omni-channel performance. But I think certainly the retailers over here are looking and seeing their brick and mortar stores as being the place for more engagements, more experiential opportunities, and, you know, greater engagement with those customers. And seeing that generation now having been blocked out for a couple of years in terms of really only being limited to buy online, now coming back to the stores themselves. So I think there's this really much bigger push now to try and make that whole, rather than departmentalizing and differentiating too much between the different buying channels, but to actually grow the brand love across the uh, across the businesses and get people into the stores. We can only be good for, for our own media um, because you've got that greater opportunity for, cust- for direct customer engagement. Jonathan, next 12 months? Yeah, we're seeing a shift into brand budgets, investing into retail media. So it's not just the trade or shopper marketing budgets that are you know, investing into stores and digital channels. It's it's now the brand budget. So, you know, we're seeing that as a as a shift, which is a big growth opportunity for organizations. Well, it gets pretty interesting, doesn't it? That gets interesting when it's brand budgets yep. being tapped. Yep. And it's stealing money out of the paid media pool, right? So mm. um, that is an interesting dynamic for the industry as a whole. The other big growth area is in loyalty departments and businesses, so looking to offset the capex of their loyalty programs through media monetization and, you know, the sophisticated personalization that they're allowed, you know, can achieve um, from their first-party data and serving relevant offers to customers, which will ultimately grow their revenues. So that's another one. And then I guess the third one for me would be the digitization of static in-store formats. Right. So a lot of the retailers have had trouble with 
store manager compliance, not putting the posters up, that kind of thing. Um, so having that centralized control through digital um, when it comes to delivering partner campaigns is making everyone's life a lot easier. Yeah, that's interesting. Angus, your final thoughts? Oh, look, I think there is a more realisation that owned media is more than just retail media. So more and more sectors are going to be taking advantage of the owned media assets that they have, and that could be within financial services, utilities, tourism, these kind of areas. So that'll be the first thing. I think secondly, within the retail space, we're going to see merchant marketing working a lot more closely on these kinds of initiatives, and they're going to be creating really, really appealing media ecosystems um, that they can then take out to their uh, suppliers and partners. And then the third thing I think is going to be a greater reliance on the tech platforms to really help operationalize uh, owned media and reduce the costs around it and thereby maximizing the profit from it. Good points all round. Good to chat, gents. And I think if America's bustling towards big growth, uh, the rest of us will follow. And it sounds like that's exactly what's happening. Good to chat and uh, look forward to an update in 12 months to see whether those predictions came true. That would be good to see, wouldn't it? Thanks for joining, gents. Stay safe. Thanks, Thanks, Paul. This MI3 audio edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.